hey, you know, you guys have been traveling for a while. We're seeing pictures. You're in El Nido. I don't think you're working. And we're telling them, look, no, there's a plan. So they come over and they're on the beach and they're like, so what's the plan? And we point up at the hill and we say, we're going to build a house there and then we're going to build a small B&B. Compared to other places, I'm happy that we're not number one or number two. I'm, I'm glad that we've seen what Thailand has done. We've seen what Bali's done. We've seen what mass tourism has done because it gives us examples to say like, hey, some of this worked, some of this didn't work. Months into this COVID-19 outbreak, the tourism sector in the Philippines has really suffered a lot. Most resorts and hotels are closed. Travel is still very much restricted. And in fact, our government is debating whether or not to release a much needed 10 billion peso relief fund for the travel sector. Today, we're going to be speaking to Mark, who owns the Birdhouse, which is a small glamping site in El Nido. I first learned of the birdhouse on Instagram when I started seeing photographs of these canvas tents pitched underneath stilted platforms overlooking Marimegmeg Beach. It's a beautiful little place. The food is excellent. And the only challenge is that you do have to go up quite a number of stairs. But when you do get up, uh, you'll usually run into Mark and his wife and his son, Aguila, who live on the property and run the place. You can tell that the resort was built, maybe not with the biggest budget, but definitely with a lot of love. And I think the birdhouse is uniquely positioned in this tourism destination because it still feels small. And part of that concept of staying small is also becoming sustainable. And Mark and his wife developed uh, an off-the-grid way to collect water. They're trying to develop alternative ways um, to create solar energy. And I think what Mark speaks to us today about is the adventure of uh, a young Filipino couple uh, who had a dream to build something special. And that something special is the birdhouse. So here we have today with it. So here we have today with us, Mark Villaflor. So the birdhouse is an off the grid glamping site with a small yoga studio that gets converted once a day um, at sunset, and then a small restaurant called the Nesting Table. My wife Camille and I came over after. Uh, 16-month trip around the world honeymooning, and then we picked up different ideas. We had one of creating a bed and breakfast, and I guess the short story of it, why it became a glamping site, was we thought that was going to be the cheap, cheapest way to start. Of course, we were pretty naive when we started, and we were on a hillside property, so there was nothing, no areas that were flat. We had to build the platforms. That was in an added, added expense. We had the tents. Of course, we're living in the Philippines, so half the year there's rain dumping, so we had to put a roof, and slowly, surely, we uh, built some infrastructure um, that could withstand heavy rains and 
started designing other things around the property to make sure it was more climate resilient for when there wasn't enough rain in the summer. Yeah. And then we just considered it a big playground. And then of course it was our home at the top. Um, it still is. And we're happy to welcome people from around the world. We're also happy to be locked down here. Yeah. It's a nice, it's a nice contrast to where we were at a couple months ago. Take me back a little bit. Um, where, where are you? Where are you and Camille originally from? So Camille grew up just outside of Metro Manila in Morong Rizal. So it's an hour, an hour and a half, depending on traffic, um, from Metro Manila. And then for for me, I ended up um, growing up in the states. Uh, my dad was in the Navy, and my mom was a nurse. So pretty typical U.S. philam family. Um, and then. I migrated over to the Philippines um, to take my master's after a short stint of teaching English in Korea and then hopped around in different international schools in the Middle East and Asia and then came back to the Philippines. Camille and I met and then we went to Shanghai shortly after um, getting married and Stayed in Shanghai for three years for her and then four years for me. I was there a year ahead of her. Um, and then during that time, we were just saving, investing in single family homes for rental properties in the US. And that was after the market crash. Um, and then we ended up firing our bosses and decided to go on a 12 month trip that we called 365 travel dates. So it was kind of a delayed honeymoon. So, but before you decided to go on these 365 dates, um, it was, I mean, although you were traveling quite extensively, it was still pretty much a nine to five existence, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I was teaching from Monday to Friday at an international school. So, you know, it's just a normal teacher schedule. I mean, I get my summer vacations and then Christmas vacations and whatever other vacations are for the national holidays. I, I like the way you phrased it. You fired your bosses. <laughs> How what what happened? What what was the what was the spark that started this 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 long extended honeymoon of yours? I mean, the term that we use was we were just lifestyle designing. We were taking control of what we wanted to do and where we wanted to go. And for us, travel was pretty ingrained in our relationship. So we were traveling and within the Philippines when we first met. Um, we went to Cebu, uh, we went to Iloilo, um, we went to different places in Laguna and Bicol. So it was something we were doing together. And then when we moved to Shanghai during you know Easter holiday or summer holiday, we would go out for two weeks or two months at a time and just travel. And then living in Shanghai, stepping out the door, I mean, that is something we considered travel. And there were so many places to explore within just our small area. Yeah. So from Shanghai, we just, it was deeply ingrained in terms of us continuing to travel. So we were either traveling or we were hosting, we were uh, hosting couch surfers. We were coach, uh, hosting friends and family all the time uh, from the Philippines and other places. And then I guess it seemed natural that we would, host the world that allowed us to travel and when we see people we've seen a lot of people from that 16 month uh trip that have come to El Nido and I mean one example was we 
we climbed Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania um, with nice. a Dutch that couple. Nice, that been an adventure. That was an adventure. Um, yeah, you'll have to ask Camille about that. We uh, It was okay. one of those things that I had dreamed of and kind of dragged her along. She wasn't really sure what she was getting into. Um, yeah, and, you know, a few years later, uh, the couple ended up coming from the Netherlands and visiting us. And they recall us saying that, oh, yeah, whenever you come visit us in the Philippines, maybe we'll have a bed and breakfast. Now, that wasn't something we were very intentional about it was something we threw out like this could be one of our dreams or this is one of our dreams um and you know so far we've done okay i think so what was it after after all these adventures and i think it's a whole nother podcast to talk about your adventures on the road with camille what was what was it like uh what kind of el nido did you find five years ago when you first arrived Oh, gosh. Um, so at the end of the trip, I had gotten a job offer in Austria, and we were processing the visa in, in the U.S. and in the Philippines. Um, and when we were in the Philippines, we were having a hard time, not a hard time, it was just taking a long time to get the visa done. So we started to travel. Well, we came to El Nido in September, and it was the middle of Habagat, like the typhoon season. Um and it's not, the bay isn't that nice during that time because the wind and the waves are bringing in all this ocean debris. The water's not clear, you know, at least on the mainland and even on some of the islands and the beaches. Um, so when we went out, we would go out on the island hopping tours and just be wet and kind of be meh about like the whole Buckwit Bay island hopping. Um, but we, we also ended up coming up with some cash and through one of our investments that we sold so we thought about whether or not we should start traveling again or if we should just start adulting and we decided that we should adult and one of the things we ended up doing um during that time was we, we just started looking for property within a small budget i think it was something like fifty thousand us dollars uh or forty thousand I, I can't recall the exact figure we thought we would go somewhere outside of El Nido because we thought El Nido was going to be really expensive. And then when we started talking to people, they told us, no, there's like properties within your budget. And we looked at a few, picked out a couple, and then just narrowed it down to this one. Regarding this site, I mean, you said you looked at a, a couple of couple of properties. Obviously, you know, budget is a consideration, but you're sitting on a very complicated site. Was there anything about it particularly that you said, no, I, we see the potential on, on this place? Because if, th- if you talk to a resort developer and said, we're, we're going to build you know, a hotel on a hillside, that, that's not usually what, what the thought process is like. Yeah, um, I've, I've never approached it that way. I mean, this was our first time having our own business. Um, this was our first time building a house. This was our first time living in El Nido, which lacks a lot of infrastructure. We just were up on the beach and we pointed up. I remember my parents were telling us, hey, you know, you guys have been traveling for a while. We're seeing pictures. You're in El Nido. I don't think you're working. And we're telling them, look, no, there's a plan. So they come over and they're on the beach and they're like, so what's the plan? And we point up at the hill. We said, we're going to build a house there and then we're going to build a small B&B. And of course we went up and they're like, oh, this is hard to walk up and i can't imagine (laughs) going up and carrying everything and 
building a house, um, let alone a small hotel. So that for us, it was, there was just, we were very naive. We had no idea what we were doing. And that was good because in certain aspects, we figured out what we couldn't do. We had no idea what we were doing. I had no background in construction. Camille had more of a background in construction than I did because she was, she's an interior designer. Um, so she kind of knew some of the process and she's been on various construction sites measuring things. You know, I, I was bringing up lumber and different tools the first week when we thought we were starting our construction. And then when we were doing it, I'm like, oh, this is harder than it seems like, I, I don't know, um, maybe we should hire somebody. So, you know, we scrapped up some money, got some quotes, went with the first guy not the first guy that we talked to, but our first contractor came in and he did, he did an okay job. We had to fix it and rebuild most of it. But considering how challenging it was, it, I can understand some of the difficulty. So slowly but surely we were getting these structures up. And what we ended up doing was we put the tents on platforms and we were only charging, I think, 2,000 or 2,500 pesos. So 40, 50 US a night, up to four people could stay there. And then we moved up gradually as we got better infrastructure. Um, and I think now, or you know, before the global health crisis, we were at eight to 10,000 bezels per night. Um, and we had a decent, you know, quite a high occupancy rate. And there weren't a lot of complaints about the price because we, we felt like we were giving a good enough experience. And I think the guests were receiving that. Let's go back a bit. Um, how so? How long from from the moment you sort of signed your lease and said, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna do this," and the, from the first load of lumber you took up yourself on your back on your shoulders up to the site? How long between that moment and the first night of guests um, that stayed at Birdhouse? Let's see. So we we acquired the property November twenty fifteen. Feb, January, February of 2016 is when we actually started construction. And then we've completed three platforms for the tents and the house, like a small two bedroom house. We moved into the house at the end of July. And then we accepted our first guest, I'd say the beginning of September of 2016. Uh, no, it was uh, six to nine months. Oh, six to nine months. So it was six to nine yeah. months between the, the, that first load of lumber to the first guest. Do you still remember who those first guests were who stayed at uh, at Birdhouse? Our first guest? Oh, yeah. Uh, it, was, it was a family from Seattle. And it's funny because the guy, John is his name. John had just broken his toe. We didn't know that, but the mom was excited because she had been following us on Facebook from April onwards, we thought we were going to open in April. We kept pushing it back. We were getting bookings for April, May, June, July. And then finally we were able to open um, in September. Um, so she had followed us from the ground up, somehow stumbling upon our Facebook page. And then it was her, her husband, and then I think her 17-year-old daughter or 18-year-old daughter. They actually came back this year, I think in January, they didn't stay with us, but they came up to the restaurant. So they saw 
um, the progress and the difference between where we are at and you know where where we've come. Now you're saying that your your first clients actually stumbled upon your Facebook page while you were in the process of of building the place. And I mentioned earlier that you guys are killing it on Instagram, and you do have from a photographer's perspective. I have to say you have a very photogenic place. Has has the internet, has social media and having your own website and booking capabilities. Was that always a plan from the start? And how do you think it's helped you develop uh, Birdhouse? Yeah, so there's, I mean, we didn't really have, so we, we came with a background of we were travel blogging during our trip and we picked up some skills like social media um, you know, we were Instagramming before Instagrammers were influent, becoming influencers. So we kind of understood some of that. And then because we were in a travel community, we connected with a lot of people in the Philippines that were in the same industry that we would be in. So we kept in contact with other travel bloggers um, and they helped us out. And then we we were doing some Facebook advertising. Um, just to kind of help get exposure. But then I felt like once we got the story and the narrative going, there would be enough people that would share that uh, where we wouldn't have to be spending a lot on marketing. And it started slow, but I think transitioning from blogging into something like this with like a decent amount of followers was enough to get people excited about, you know, at the time, what was a three tent hotel or bed and breakfast? It was more of an Airbnb. To be honest, I mean, I know, I know your wife Camille is has a design background, and and again, as a photographer, I greatly appreciate uh, when I go to a resort or a location that has this, you know, it has this, your your place has a story, and you can see the story everywhere you look. There's a consistent, there's a consistency to to that experience, right? Um, I know you know this, and sometimes I I think I say this too often, but you know, sometimes design and ho small hotels and resorts in the Philippines don't necessarily go hand in hand. Um, it's usually very functional. It's a box with an air condition and a bed. It can't be easy to design something this beautiful. Uh, was that always the, the intention? Was design, as well as practicality, was design always an important part of the whole concept? I mean, that's, that's a question for Camille, but absolutely it was. I so she's an interior designer and she's done a decent amount of projects in the Philippines. Um, she'll just never go out and look for getting credit for any of them. Um, but you have to understand we were expats with, uh, you know, a decent type of housing provided, but we weren't able to design and do things that we wanted to do. And then while we're doing that, I'm pressuring us to just buy houses that we'll never step into from a financial perspective i just thought that was the most prudent thing we could do with our money so i think we had four five six housing like houses or condos um that we purchased before we ever had our own home so she was craving to build our home and to design it um I mean, the problem, and I don't think she would say this is a problem, but we had a very limited budget. So when you come up into the house, basically it's an expression of her design plus 
our limitation on budget. Um, but with hosting and with her wanting to host at a high level, she wanted to make everything feel really comfortable and not just like from how you sit, but what you're looking at. She wanted everything to be, you know, calm, relaxing. You're, I mean, you're on vacation in the most beautiful place in the world. You know, you're looking out at Buckwit Bay, which is already gorgeous. So we expect and we hope that other hotels would follow that they would respect that and balance to where they would bring in some aesthetic. So for us, design was always going to be one of the top things that we thought about. Your design, I mean, just to describe, to describe it, your nests, and you call them nests, are sitting on these rather tall 15, 20 foot pylons on a wooden platform. And on that, you have a, a canvas tent, right? Is that a fair description of, of the yep, material? Correct. So you've got a canvas tent, you've got the bed, which is just on the floor on a rug, and you have two chairs. And as you say, you look out into Bucket Bay, which is one of the most, I think you have one of the most stunning views in the whole El Nido. I mean, it's very, very simple, but I think that's that's where the the charm is. So five years on, what are you, what are you offering now? From you know a simple bed under a tent, now you have the restaurant. Now you're doing yoga. Have you gotten to a point where you say, okay, this is it. We're happy with what what we have to offer. Are you planning to expand? Yeah. So we wanted to add. We wanted to move away from the glamping and then just get an added comfort so like with our setup being an off the grid what i mean by off the grid is we have no road access we have no public utilities there's no electricity coming from the government there's no water coming from the government um so we're self-sufficient in that regard we're not able to offer a lot of things that most hotels are able to offer like we don't have air conditioning units in any of the accommodation that we have and we don't have hot water because the idea of having hot water is a spike in electricity. It's a huge strain on the uh, generator. Again, we have had a small budget on that, um, like moving into the birdhouse. So our infrastructure wasn't as good as we in, as, as we had hoped for. So there's a lot of things that are lacking in our property. And we try to make up for that in the experience. And also, we try to be very transparent about it. But of course, we still want to elevate. So now we've got the restaurant, which is doing okay. You know, people have begun to found that, find us um, in the middle of the jungle. And because we're very limited in our accommodation spaces during the high season, we're generally fully booked. And so a lot of people come up for a meal and they're happy to get the meal whenever they can. Um, most of them want to eat outside, so they'll get the reservation. We started moving into um, offering yoga classes. and when we realized that there was a high demand for yoga classes, we just started promoting yoga retreats. And with the number of yoga teachers that were coming in and out and the practitioners that were coming in and, in and out um, and enjoying the space, um, they were essentially our, our marketing in terms of getting retreats going, um, whether on Instagram or Facebook or just simple word of mouth. The background sounds remind me that uh, another change from the past five years is you now have a plus one, right? And that's the little guy we're hearing in the background. Yeah, so that's Aguila. Um, he likes to put a word in here and there. 
you know, you're, you're talking about um, being off the grid, not having any electricity coming in from the grid. Tell me a little bit about what I, what I found really fascinating is the way you built and designed Birdhouse is, is the sustainability aspect. Because, uh, I mean, a lot of hotels and resorts right now are, are playing catch up to that as far as water, electricity, sustainability. But you seem to be ahead of the game because you, from the ground up, you were already thinking of all these design elements that would later on allow you to be sustainable. That's a long discussion. But with with how we approached it, um, again, we were very naive. Um, like I, we both, Camille and I, I think, forgot that water runs down hills. Um, water running down the hill creates erosion. So the the environmental design was mainly as a result of problems that we had from the climate that we have in El Nido and in the Philippines. Too much rain in the rainy season, not enough rain in the in the dry season. Pretty much after the house was done, it was July and we started noticing some erosion um, on the property. A friend had recommended someone to come over to take a look. Um, and this guy named Ignacio uh, Sayahon, he used to help write policy for local government. He kind of moved away from the theoretical side of things um, and wanted to do more practical things. And he was very much in the permaculture. Um, and so he ended up coming over and giving us some ideas on what we could do to, uh, I mean, solve the erosion problem. And one of the big initiatives, I guess, or projects that we had was to create swales, which were canals based on the uh, contour lines of the property. And we made these canals, but closed them off at the end. Essentially, essentially they were ditches and that would capture the water. And we did about 10 of those um, throughout the property. And what that ended up doing was cutting off the water from running off. Now in the summer, when there's no more rain coming down and it's hot and dry, a lot of the wells start to dry up. So with the swales, we're catching as much water as possible during the rainy season and it's alleviating the uh, drought situation in the summer. Now, for you, you mentioned that you're not pulling any electricity from, from the grid. How are you solving um, your, your electricity situation? And, you know, again, you said there are no TVs, there's no air conditioning, or so the consumption is already, I suspect, relatively low. But you still need electricity. Oh yeah, the the consumption's low, but the um, the expense is very high. We're running a diesel generator, and it's something that we wanted to move away from. But when when you're on the island, and depending on what island, I mean, I'm sure you've been on islands where there's no electricity. At 5, 6, 7 p.m., you just hear all the generators start to turn on. For the first two years, I think, two or three years that we were here, that was pretty much the standard. Um, when you got on the beach moving towards us, all it was was generators until the government started to come in. And, well, the private sector, some of the businesses in our neighborhood um, paid into getting government to supply us some of those lines. Um, or the electric, the utility company. So now that's something that we have to buy into. And those were things that we were going to do second quarter of this year. Um, and we had plans for that, but you know, things change. 
uh, global crisis, global health crisis happened. You know, solar was one thing that we looked into for a while as well. Um, and I think that's still an option for us. We're looking at that as well, even during um, the lockdown, um, if that's an option for even just the house. You mentioned this earlier that building a resort in the Philippines is a complicated thing to do. You know, a lot of the locations are on islands. There's no water. There's no electricity. But yet, but but yet it's done, right? Do you think that there's still more progress to be made to be able to build, you know, more more cost effectively? Because oh, absolutely. Well, one one thing that 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 we see, and and I know I'm talking to a to a resort owner here, is. You know, it's quite expensive to travel around the Philippines compared to other destinations around the region. Um, the room costs are, are, are higher. The flight costs are higher. The food costs are higher. How do you think, do you think that holds us back as a tourism destination? Just, you know, the competitive offer compared to the region? No, I, I don't think so. And I, that's not the type of tourism we want. I mean... I, I don't want the Philippines to sell cheap rooms for in the short term and then have a long-term consequence of environmental disaster. I mean, I don't want whatever, 30, 40 million tourists coming in who have no idea of what their ecological footprint is during their travel. I, I think that especially in what'll be the new normal or post COVID people are just going to have to pay for travel again. I mean, before, before all these, the, the backpacking trend and all that and Instagram, it was, it wasn't something everyone did. And, and I thought that travel shifted towards this more consumerist tick off the bucket list sort of thing, take a picture not learn anything about the local culture. I, I'm, I mean, there, there's so much that I like about the tourism model in the Philippines compared to other places. I'm happy that we're not number one or number two. I'm, I'm glad that we've seen what Thailand has done. We've seen what Bali's done. We've seen what mass tourism has done because it gives us examples to say like, hey, some of this worked, some of this didn't work. I, I would rather have a lower number of tourists that can pay a higher price rather than a lot of you know people seeking cheap beer it's a hard question to ask someone who works in the travel industry because you know i i say i have to agree with you that the low cost market has its advantages and its disadvantages and you know the more the higher price the, the more exclusive kind of travel has its advantages and its disadvantages but I think it might also be a case, and I, th I ask this as a question to you, of, you know, the whole Philippines isn't the same destination, that you can yeah. develop, for example, Boracay for a certain market segment, expecting right. a certain type of service, and El Nido for a different kind of market and a different kind of service, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, w one thing that I'm really happy about El Nido being so far away from infrastructure, meaning it's five hours away from the nearest, what I guess will soon be, a, or is an international airport in Puerto Princesa means it's just not that easy to get to. So a lot of people don't want to have the hassle of getting on a five hour van, um, or you're going to pay 
to go on AirSwift, which is going to be $150 one way or even more during high season um, to get from Manila straight into El Nido. Um, it gives the, it, it gives an opportunity and a chance to build infrastructure for the mass tourism that will come. But I feel like the stakeholders, whoever they may be, um, aren't seizing that opportunity to build that infrastructure. Right. I think, I think you're right. I think it, it's about recognizing what the potential carrying capacity of each location and each site really is instead of trying to apply one developmental model for all for the whole country because I, I don't think that's feasible because the way right. Shergao is developing is very different from Cebu from El Nido from the rest of Palawan and, and so forth and so on um, where where do you see where do you see El Nido moving towards I mean you you touched on it just now the airport access is limited so you're not going to be getting huge A320 flights a couple of years from now with 200 passengers. It's still going to be a, a much smaller number of tourists arriving. Where, where do you see El Nido growing towards? Oh, gosh. Um, I, you know, I, I, I have a hope for one type of El Nido, but I feel like once things go back up, travel restrictions are lifted, people are going back to what they used to do, it, it's, it's just going to go back to where it was. Unless there was a huge paradigm shift or mentality shift amongst all of the stakeholders. But tourism, when we're looking at tourism, it, it's short-term economic opportunity. And if you're looking at these far-flung destinations, where people were fishing, let's just assume you went to a fishing village of 30 or 40,000 people who didn't have access to education or the internet or you know roads to the city. All of a sudden, they're welcoming people from London and Cape Towners and Chinese and you know all types of people that they've never interacted with. Now, I don't know if there's a scramble towards getting an education to be able to have a hosting town or if you're just trying to get on any boat that you can and charge any price that you can um, because you've never seen money like this. And I, I just feel like with what's happening with COVID, there's just a lot of inequality and the gap between socioeconomic classes classes are expand like getting bigger i mean hotel owners and managers of the hospitality industry they could go online and find a job that's not related to hospitality and probably get paid more than they would be on the island as long as they have a inter a decent internet connection now the the janitor of some restaurant or hotel, they don't, I mean, even if they could get the job, I don't know that they would have the infrastructure like a laptop to be able to work online. I, I don't know what the, their alternatives would be. So when it opens up, they're going to, if the majority of that 30 or 40,000 population from that fishing village 
gets the keys and are able to open the door back to tourism, they'll go, I imagine they'll jump right back into it in the same way that it continued. However, there is a growing number of people that are moving towards food security. Um, and it seems to be more small, medium businesses. And, it, and I could be wrong about that, but people that have thought about farming as a way to offset food costs, um, the people that were really scrutinizing numbers um, in their business, they're moving towards um, farming because they see it as a source of security. Um, if we have no money coming in, but we're still able to feed ourselves, that has to mean something. And what I feel like is also happening is there's a discussion amongst other people that aren't in El Nido, amongst travelers. There's yoga classes that are happening. You can pick over, I don't know, 10,000 Instagram yoga teachers and have that. And people are becoming more conscious because they know that mental health is an issue when they're sitting in their cubicle in their 20 square meter studio apartment in the city. They're growing their food, they're urban gardening, they're understanding what's going inside of their stomachs and on their plates. Um, they're realizing the need for compost and looking at waste. And when lockdowns start to open up, hopefully there's a more mindful, more conscious consumer or traveler that are gonna look for these types of hotels or businesses that could support their lifestyle the way it's changed through covid i just don't know if there's going to be enough of that or if it's just going to go back to where it was that's an interesting way to look at it because we we see that covid has changed the travel industry drastically right now it's decimated it and we expect it to change the travel industry but it would be interesting to see how covid changes the travelers themselves right as you've just mentioned if it if it becomes a much more conscious form of travel because i think it will be it's going to go from you know what most people think is almost a right to definitely a privilege and a luxury to be able to travel absolutely in the next coming months and and maybe maybe years mark i know you're sitting there at the birdhouse as i interview you it's late afternoon you're looking at a rather empty Bucket Bay and a very empty Mari Megmeg Beach. What are you looking forward to when things reopen sometime soon? When they open up, I'll probably be looking forward to going back to lockdown. There's been such a huge change in the way the neighborhood feels and the way our own mental health feels and our own physical bodies feel having our own space. Now we live on the hotel. So at five o'clock or four 30, when people are coming up for sunset and the reservations are starting to come in and then guests that are checked in are coming up off of tour boats and then eight, 10 or 12 people are going up for yoga. Well, it gets pretty busy. Um, and on a stair, a bamboo staircase, you're going to run into people and what I do around that time now is I take Aguila down at about 5, 5.30 because that's when the birds are out. We've been doing a lot more birding. We walk around the property um, on the service pass as well just to start looking at stuff. And I've never felt more better about that type of travel. Just, again, stepping out of our door 
calling it travel and then seeking something extraordinary. Um, you know, the other day I was urinating um, in a patch of bamboos on one of the staircases. And then I'm looking out and this bird leaves after like 15 seconds. And it was kind of strange. And so I'm looking at like, oh, there's a bird nest. And and I look in and there's two two eggs. You know, well, if we're business as usual and there's all these people up and down, they're probably disrupted more and I'm not ever well, I wouldn't probably get be able to get that experience. Um but when we do open up, you know, I, I think it'll be quite slow. Um, it'll be nice because it'll go back to where we were in our first year where we were really able to host people and talk to them and see where they come from and understand why they would even book a place like the birdhouse. And, and that's nice because it shares an intimate moment. They're able to not just take photos, but without all the crowds, have a conversation with, you know, some of the stakeholders of tourism in El Nido and ask them, you know, we can ask each other about like, well, how is climate change affecting your part of the region? What are the considerations that you would have in, in a typhoon or during a drought? Um, how How is your country solving some of that? What, what do you suggest we would do? And so it creates a platform for discussion and for interaction with other people, which is why we travel. You know, I'm sure there are, and this I've done this personally every once in a while when I'm deep into fantasizing, but there's some people out there saying, you know what? I'm ready to quit my job. Uh, I want to get out of here. I want to find a piece of land. I want to carry some wood up a hill and build something. What advice do you have for, you know, uh, someone like you from five years ago who wants to leave the city, find a, their own little piece of paradise and build something? So if someone was asking me about or for advice, I would tell them to not do it. This is the craziest thing that Camille and I have ever done. And it was very challenging. Now, if somebody's persistent and they want to do it, then they're probably ready. But if they're ready to throw in the towel by somebody saying, don't do it, then absolutely they shouldn't do it. For us, we just had a lot of dreams and we were persistent and we knocked down walls to get through where we were. I, I don't know that a lot of people are able to do that, especially in a relationship when there's two people making decisions and sometimes they're not always aligned. It, it becomes difficult. But if you were to continue and you were persistent, I would say learn what you don't know fast. And once you realize you don't know how to cook, give that job to somebody else. Once you realize you don't know how to run a generator, give that job to somebody else. There's no point in trying to learn how to run a generator if you're more effective somewhere else in the business. I mean, those are examples of, you know, personal examples from from what I've experienced. So there, there's a lot that I could say from that, but those, I guess, would be the two things. All right, Mark. Um, I know Aguilas, they're probably wanting his... Uh late afternoon walk down to the beach. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I hope we are recording this in the time of COVID. Um, and I hope things get back to as normal as possible as soon as possible. Mark, how can, again, for those who haven't already seen your website or Instagram, how can we reach out to you and the birdhouse? 
Yeah, uh, just find us on Facebook or Instagram at the Birdhouse El Nido, um, thebirdhouseelnido.com, Instagram.com slash thebirdhouseelnido. Um, we're there. And, you know, shoot us a message if you have any questions about building a hotel or El Nido or anything, really. Um, we've got more time on our hands now. Um, so we're happy to engage with uh, people that are interested in hearing what we have to say. So thanks, Paco. All right. Thanks, Mark. And thanks for listening into the great podcast where we've talked about stories of adventure and travel from the Philippines. You can check out our Instagram at gridmagazineph or our website gridmagazine.ph catch you on the next one